Hey, my name is Connor Malley, and I'm the founder of SQR Squash Radio. And it turns out I'm a squashpreneur. What does that mean? Basically, an entrepreneur, but in the squash industry. I founded Metro Squash in Chicago. I've been a teaching professional, tried out for Team USA, came nowhere close to making the team. But years later, I did find myself on the business side as director of Team USA. I've ran the US Open while working at US Squash for several years, done consulting for squash clubs and events, even court construction. The list goes on. These days, I'm still deeply involved in squash, especially with my new role with the PSA, the Pro Squash Tour, but trying to expand into other racket sports in lighting, court construction, and strategy. There's some exciting projects I'm working on, and I can't wait to share them. But in the meantime, we hope you're enjoying these squash-focused podcasts our team is helping to put out. We love doing them, and we hope you enjoy them too. What about this? This call is being recorded. Today's guest is Aiden Harrison, who has been the head squash professional at the Owencia Club in Lake Forest, Illinois, for over 20 years. During that time, Aiden has helped both foster an amazing community and develop incredible talent. In this episode, we dig deeper into how Aiden has developed one of the best double squash community in the country by increasing participation over 800%. We unpack the core ingredients needed to make squash grow and be successful. Spoiler alert, try aiming at making it fun. We talk about Aiden's coaching style and how he develops top talent, as well as we learn why Lululemon made the decision to work with Aiden as one of their brand ambassadors. I've always enjoyed the chance to connect with Aiden, and it was great to get one of those conversations in the record books. A quick thank you to our sponsor, Pro Sport LED, your trusted lighting source for racket sports facilities like squash, tennis, pickleball, or padel because of its advanced LED lighting technology. These lights are a perfect solution for anyone building a new facility, but they can easily be retrofitted into existing courts. If you're looking for lights or know anyone that is, please go ahead and connect us at squashradio at gmail.com. That's squashradio at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope you enjoyed the show. Hey there, Squash fans. Welcome back to another episode of Squash Radio. I'm your host, Connor O'Malley. Very excited to have this guest on here today. We go way back, and he was one of my early influences in learning the sport of squash. He's originally from England, but calling in today from Lake Forest, Illinois. Welcome to the show, Aiden Harrison. Hey, Connor. Thanks for having me today. I'm very excited to talk to you. It's going to be fun. (laughs) I know this is, uh, I keep saying this to a lot of guests, but it's very true. This is a long time in the making. And one thing I didn't give the title of where you're calling in from is you are the head squash professional at the Owencia Club, and you've been there 20 years, which is a remarkable time, and you've helped grow that program so much. Before we dive into the the success that you've had uh, in building your programs, I want to give the listener a little bit of a contrast of here you are in one of the most wealthy neighborhoods in the U.S. Yet, talk to us about how you came to the United States. Well, it goes back. In 91, I played on the PSA tour, which was then called ISPA tour, with Paul Johnson. Him and I toured North America and South America. And I kind of fell in love with it and the small little events they had, which were really, really amateur 
embraced. And the following year, I came back and David Pearson had moved to Dallas, Texas, and he was out here coaching. And I was fortunate enough to stay with him for the summer and go to tournaments backwards and forwards. Now, David Pearson was my coach from age 11 onwards till 21. And when David had moved to America, I was his assistant in England before he moved. And when he left, I took over his role in the UK. So it was fun staying with him and I played some more tournaments. I had some fun times, especially with Jonathan Power. We had a fun time in San Fran. And then in 93, DP had left and I'd been living in Austria, in Vienna, and I didn't really mesh with that club. Language barrier is a little problem, but so I ended up calling Dallas and Dallas said, well, DP's left. Why don't you come over? So February of 93, I came over and put about $100 in my pocket and it completely changed from then. By the beginning of the next year, I was a, a pro at two different clubs, not where DP was, and built their program. Stayed there for nine years and I did a lot of things in that time when I was there, including the president of the DSRA. I started the Texas Open up in 2000, which is still going to this day. And I also played a lot of nationals events. And during that time, I did a lot of camps on the East Coast at the Talbot Squash Academy. That was five years of that. And that made me want to teach juniors and living in Dallas, Texas, there was no junior program. The kids were just outside doing baseball and football all the time. It was hard to bring them inside. So as soon as an opportunity for juniors came around, I got an email from Robert Graham at the time. And there was a position in Lake Forest was open where they just built the court. So there was no programming ready or anything. And they had one hardball court, one doubles court. I did my interview on the hardball court. And then by the time I arrived, they had another doubles court and two international singles. So they were like, this is yours, build it and they will come. So that's what I did. Well, and you know, during my time at US Squash and you didn't post that, anytime someone starts talking about double squash and specifically hardball double squash, it's hard not to point towards the Owencia Club and what you've built there is really a business case for being highly successful. And the reason for that is pretty obvious is in terms of the court utilization. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about the sort of before and after picture of when you came in, how much activity was going on and where are you today? Okay, so when I arrived in 2001, we had a retired tennis pro who was looking after the squash program and he handed over to me and he had about 20, 25 to 30 guys playing in a doubles league. Now in that doubles league, we had two different levels. Every player had a handicap. Now that handicap was for each side that you played on. So it was a different handicap for a left wall compared to a right wall. And most of the beginners, we had a couple of good players, but most of them were just average players who played tennis before and they came inside and he organized matches. Well, when he went from going to email instead of calling the secretaries to set up the game for them, it changed everything. And he was a great mentor. He was in his seventies, Bob Breckenridge. And he taught me how to organize. And there was a tournament here at on Wednesday that had been going on. It's now in its 40th year called the TB Hunter 50-50. It's named of an old member who didn't even play squash, but he gave his name to the tournament after about 12 years and the family have run it since. This is the call of 50-50. One guy is under 50, one guy is over 50. It's one of the greatest tournaments I've ever been involved in. 
all the players are pulled out of a hat, it's blind draw. Basically, you're going to meet a new member in the club who you've probably never met or played with before, and you're his partner for the full weekend. And there's a lot of little fun things in it. Anybody who hits the most tins during the first two or three days of the event has to wear a tin man outfit for the finals and serve drinks <laughs> for the members. And we have the Fault Fairy. That one wears a little pink tutu <laughs> and some high heels, and they serve drinks downstairs where the tin man stays upstairs. So it's it's fun all weekend, and we have a wheel of fortune that they spin. They can throw out a yellow card, and that's to spin the wheel. A green card gives them a free point, and a red card makes them play the point over again. You can only use them at certain times in the game, but it, that was my first baptism of fire the first couple of months, and we had 28 players in that event. We've had as high as 84 over the years, and it's really the best event of the club, over the golf or the tennis or anything. Everybody comes together. It's during the festive season in between Thanksgiving and Christmas, and it's just a fun two weeks of the club. And everybody in the membership comes out to watch. And it's not the greatest players in the final. I've seen a guy from the age of 84 to 89 win it three times. He's had a great partner, but everybody's out there cheering for Doc Falls, trying to win the 50-50. And he's won it with three different people. So great event, great club. And those little nuances or those little touches of the, the what do you call it, the tin, the tin, tin man, cup, the tin man the, and the fault fairy, is that something, was that already in place in there or was that a touch that you and your team added on? Me and my team added that as we've gone through the years. We've added different characters and different little things, like I said, and nuances. And we've actually taken the 50-50 on the road. I took it to Texas in 2006 and we've taken it twice to Charleston squash club in the last three years and, and they love it. They've embraced it and they, it's one of their favorite events now. Have you done that on a singles court or hardball doubles only? Singles court actually converted racquetball court in Texas and it was very well received. We had 32 players. It was good. Enjoyed it. So just to spell that out again, it's like what lends itself towards a success is both like, the mixing up um, someone over the age of 50, someone under the age of 50, but it's also handicapped. So it's trying to level the playing field, right? Levels the playing field. The better, and we do a, a Calcutta and we, we've done, you know, fantasy teams and we've done lots of different twists to it. And that's what makes it a great event. But the handicap set it and you play to 13. It's three out, uh, three out of five three-point adjustment after each game and most of the matches go three two it's a long weekend but the crowd's there cheering it's open bar open buffet for two weeks it is a fun fun event so if that's sort of one of your most successful events and that was kind of already underway when when you came in what what's one of the concepts that you've helped bring sort of from your head out into the membership what, what was one of the the other ones you're proud of there's a couple of things I've done. Uh, the Chiefs Cup, which is one handicap doubles, one straight up doubles, one singles, all in one day. And I pick two captains and they get two captains picks who they pick from the membership. And then the rest of the people are pulled out of a hat. They get to draft them. And great concept. People get dressed up as different colors for each team. There's a blue team, there's a yellow team, and they make it fun. And we have drums. Go it's, it's just a great great day and then there's other other things you know the ladies squash has blown up and the reason why is we have a strong platform tennis program on the north shore in chicago but we are the only club on the north shore that has squash whether it be singles or doubles 
So you had to create a, t a group within. So I took a lot of the pedal ladies and the tennis ladies and said, listen, if you miss hit, the, miss hit a squash ball during playing doubles, it stays in. You're still in the rally. So you can have fun with it. And it's social. You've got your people next to you, right next to you, not talking across a net. So once they embraced that, there's a lot of people who played quite a bit and they would get their friends to join. And then we did uh, Witch's Night Out, which was Halloween, where they would bring their own food and drink and we'd all dress in costume and have a good time. We did the Bells and Balls, which is Christmas. We had 22 teams that year on two courts all afternoon. It started at one o'clock and it went till nine o'clock at night. And, you know, we had fire pits outside. Everybody's in costume, Christmas, festive. And... I think the thing that I thoroughly enjoy the most, though, is ladies pro doubles, where it's three ladies and I, and we do drills for the first 30 minutes, and then we play games. And it's stop, start, I'm right there next to them. I can talk them how to clear the ball, how to cover, move to the sidewalls. And you could see from the first ladies 50, 50 that we had in 2006, we had eight teams. Ten years later, we had 40 players, so 20 teams. And people embrace it, and we just make it fun. I'd love to spend a little bit of of time going back towards how you grew the women's program because I don't want to gloss over that because I know how challenging it can be to go from very few players in a specific demographic to then trying to get it to blossom and so rewind the clock to you knew you wanted to grow women's programming there but what did you do in the early days to try and do that and I know you kind of spelled out a little bit but I'd love to get a little bit more detail about that the women's program blew up in probably like 2011, 2012. And the reason was we had a lot of young members who had kids who were at kindergarten. And so you've got that time frame from like 8.30 or 9 o'clock to 11.30 where you can get them in. So the courts were always quiet at that time. So a couple of friends got word and we made it fitness. We put music on. We would have, we'd jump from jump court to court. We'd switch partners all the time. We'd do time squash all different things that made them enjoy it. And once the husbands heard that they were enjoying it, they you know want to do mixed doubles with them. So mixed doubles blew up. And it's just making that development and making it fun for the ladies that you don't have to drive so far to play a paddle match and you can just have some fun with your friends here playing for an hour squash. And then what would happen was somebody would no show for the next group and another lady would be, be there changing to leave. And she goes, oh, I'll jump in. So she would jump in for the next hour and then a lot more cr cross interaction. And then suddenly it went from, you know, 12 to 16 ladies to three years later to about 80. And then we had the uh, women's pro tour come in and we did a pro-am with the ladies and we mixed it up and we used some different formats and the ladies pro tour hadn't seen those formats before and they loved the fact that they had all these ladies watching them play doubles and they would come for our annual squash dinner every year and we'd have the women's pro event at the same time and just made it fun what i'm picking up here is that you're very focused on delivering an experience to your membership and that a lot of it's anchored in themes and you're then adding on a layer of creativity and this kind of goes you know whether time squash adding in music fitness using different formats but it seems like you have a lot of ingredients to pull on here that really your membership that has been spelling out success for growing your programming there does that sound i mean yeah we've done themes and we always I introduced a squash dinner about 2006 and we went from 40 people to 120 people last friday of 
April every year. And we put a theme on it every year. And what I would do was literally two months leading up to the event, I would start putting a video together of footage of some of the members and pictures we'd taken throughout the whole season and collaborating it. One year I did Addicted to Squash and I had a lot of the members just showing how they were addicted and what they would do. Like we put a tent inside the squash court one year for the video to make sure they were sleeping at the club, you know, just make it fun. So when it came to the squash dinner and that was always the closing video, you know, one year I was dressed up as Elmo back spinning on the squash court with my director at the time singing, it takes two, you know, and after a couple of drinks at a squash dinner on a Friday night at nine 30, they think that stuff's funny. And so they embraced it and showed that this was a fun sport to have. And it was one of the greatest nights of the year at the club where they could enjoy it and let the hair down and just look at what they've done for the past year. And then they go into the summer season and then they get fired up for the beginning of the second season or the next season. So it's got to be fun. You've got to embrace your membership. You've got to listen to what they want. And then you deliver a product that, you know, you can change not too much, but change and build on it as years go on. And that's what our goal was. So when you're going, can you talk me through a little bit of this, the brainstorming process of what you do with your, you and your team to, um, to think through that? Every year I sit down with my rackets chairs and my squash chairs, men's and women's and the pros that I work with here at the club. And I have a lot, and you've got to understand there's five or six pros here and we've got three tennis and, um, one croquet and two squash right now. And with that programming, we talk about different things that they do in different areas. And then we try to incorporate what we could do on ours. Like one year we had a tournament called the Woody, which was using wooden rackets, wearing the old school gear, just making it a fun event. And then you, you take certain, like the Chiefs Cup, I based that around the Ryder Cup one day after watching the Ryder Cup one weekend, I was like, I could do that with squash. And then one day I was watching soccer in England, the FA Cup. Now the FA Cup in England is you play each round and then after each round is played, you redraw. So it's not a set tournament. It's a redrawn after first round. So when you get to the last eight, you don't know who you're going to get and it's pulled out of a hat live. So I used to do that for the second half of the season from January until the squash dinner. So the squash dinner would be the final of the challenge cup. And after each month I would redraw who they were playing against. And so it made it fun. You know, they didn't know who they're going to do. They, they were excited for that day when they were redrawn. Okay, who am I going to get this month? So it's just be about being creative, taking other ideas that you've seen and how can you twist them into the squash dynamic? It's great. And that's, I think, one of the reasons why I go back to my statement earlier, when, when I think of successful programming, it's why I point a lot towards you. So thank you for, for spelling that out a little bit more and, and, and sharing some of how you and your team approach it. One of the other things about you, which comes through, and I'd love to, to, to dig in a little bit more, is you're deploying that level of creativity, but you also, you embrace technology. And I remember you were one of the first people streaming things. And so what, what have been some of the ways that you've used technology to enhance your program? Yes, I will say, going back to the late 2000s, I was using a webcam and streaming the yeah. club championships and the 50-50 matches to the membership on Ustream. And I would sit there and we then, you know, would I would board a couple of TVs for each court, one upstairs, one down, and we'd get a HDMI splitter and plug your iPad in and 
do a scoring system, find an app that did scoring and that the membership could see the score wherever they were set instead of just waiting for me to call it out. Because what's the worst thing that you do when you're refereeing when somebody taps you on the shoulder and goes, what's the score? <laughs> so that way it, it limited that section of the scoring and the refereeing. And, you know, people come up and say, oh, that's the score now. And they see it and they think that's great. So we've always used technology here at the club and we've always tried to adapt. Obviously, I've now, this year, I used OBS for the first time and being trying to clever with all my settings, I was able to put a scoreboard on the screen. I was trying to do that. I commentated. We have our members commentate on some of the matches sometimes and they just make it fun because the membership can relate to who's commentating because they know them. And, you know, some guys were like ESPN one day. It was great. So I remember when you were, you were telling me you were streaming and this was back from like, I don't even think people knew what streaming was. I was like, what does that mean? It's like, oh, you can watch it on the internet. Like that's how long ago it was. And so I've always been impressed. And I consider myself somewhat of an early adopter and you are just, you're even out there in front. So it's a huge credit. Is there anything you're eyeing now towards something you'd like to, from a technology component, you um, you could snap your fingers and you had your own club where you could do what you want. Is there any piece of technology you would you would definitely want to incorporate? I think the uh, interactive squash core would be great. That I mean, they, I think that's a fantastic bit of technology. And you know, just snap my fingers, heart rate monitors, everything like that, data, precision where the balls are being hit on the wall, you know, where the movement patterns are, so people can see because. That's what makes baseball as good as it is, or football. It's the stats. And mm. I mean, a society and you know, in America where stats matter. Yeah, there's the, um, I haven't played with it myself, but racket wear, it's, it's a piece that you put on the butt of your, your squash racket and it keeps track of a lot of stats, like your swing speed. I haven't played around with it, but it's an interesting piece uh, I only learned about recently. Have you played around with that? Not yet, no, but mm. I will write that down and have it, give it a whirl. We're going to take a quick break to hear a word about our sponsor. So, Lee, we want to thank you for being our first sponsor on Squash Radio. And just want to say, you've sponsored other avenues, but Squash is always where your heart's at. What does it mean to you to be sponsoring Squash? I, I think there's just a, a lot of interesting people in the sports. I've attended junior tournaments. I've been to professional tournaments. And you can always get into some engaging conversations. And I think Squash Radio is an avenue of bringing those people to the forefront. And I'm sure a lot of people would like to listen to them. And sponsoring this, we're just uh, facilitating that. That was Lee Witham, who is the CEO of Pro Sports LED, the sponsor of this podcast. You probably don't even think about lighting, and neither did we until we started talking to Lee. And now we totally get the problem that Pro Sport LED is fixing. And we know maybe that's not you now or maybe not you ever. But if you know anyone who might be interested or need to improve their lighting for squash, tennis, soccer, you name it, it would mean a lot to us and our sponsor if you'd put us in touch. You can go to squashradio.com LED or email squashradio at gmail.com. That's squashradio at gmail.com. Thank you again, and back to our show. We spent a lot of time kind of talking about doubles, but you've also then really distinguished yourself in your elite player development on the single side. And you've also had a really long uh, interaction with Team USA going back with workings 
on the, on the junior team. You still you currently work with some Team USA players now. So I'd like to talk a little about how you approach in general your philosophy towards elite player development because I know every player is unique and you're part of what makes a great coach is being a, adapting towards their needs. But when you're meeting a player for the first time, and feel free to use an example if there's someone you want to speak to how you worked with them, but how do you work with your elite players? It's different. There's, there's, I've had players that I've given their first lesson to. There was one player here at the club. I gave him a lesson on his 13th birthday, 2001, his first ever squash lesson. And by the time he was 20, which was seven years later, he was captain of Penn, which is Porter Drake. And it was just a person who loved squash. And once you get somebody who's very passionate and loves the game, I find them much easier to coach. And I've always gone through this philosophy for a long, long time is I am one book in a squash library and whatever I give to you is just a little piece. Somebody else is going to tell you something slightly different, but you might embrace that. You might not embrace what I said, but I always look at that. I'm just here to guide you and there's going to be so many people who are going to help you along the way. But if you can take one thing, that's all I ask. And so. I've worked with a lot of elite players that have their own personal coaches and I try to not tell them to change, but to listen to what their main coaches say. And I just come in and just give them a little bit of input. And if they like it, they embrace it. If they don't, I can sense it and I, and I pull back. And I like to have trust between me and them to know that I'm not overbearing. I just like to throw in a little two cents in a different way, but not, pushing or demanding. It's more like, oh, just think about this. I remember going a long way back and I think it was late nineties. I was sat behind the court at the uh, Drysdale, which is the British junior open at the time in Sheffield. And I'm sat with David Campion and we were watching one of the top Egyptian players play Kareem Darwish. And Campion told me, you know, he's trying to get James to the better four and drop. So he told James to sit next to me, he goes, Hey, watch how Kareem hits that shot. See how much touch he has, you know. But he couldn't get James to do it in the lesson. But once he asked James to watch somebody, that was his way of coaching him. Mm. A very, very interesting way to doing it, but it's visual learning. I'm all about visual learning. I love watching matches after with the player. I can see I look a lot on um body language on players. I look a lot on not just mechanics, but movement, patterns, awareness. There's so many different elements to improve a player. And another old philosophy I go back to is I try and break it down into five areas of their game, whether it be movement, whether it be technique, whether it be fitness, mental toughness, all those little areas. And I try and ask each player to put in 20% into each of those five areas. Not a lot, just 20%. You put that all together and you're 100% a better player. And that is, well, that's one of my favorite ways of coaching. What do you do for, if you're tracking that, how do you do your assessments then? I first of all sit down with the player and I go through like 15 areas of where they think they're good on and I ask them to mark them out of a certain number, like five or t sorry, 10. And then they give their own opinions and then I go in and I give what I think it is and then we can see the difference. And then we work out a plan to try and improve those areas and try and meet in the middle. That way, you know, they know. They wouldn't need to work on the front part, front court of the game. They need to work on their length or their volume or their tactical approach or their even pre-match sessions. Like 
I've seen a lot of juniors like they're talented, but preparing for a match and then they lose just in the end. If you prepared a little bit better, you would have won that match. Just it's just observation, learning the student, learning how a person ticks helps you to coach them. That's the number one thing. There's a lot of top players out there. Where I've worked with a couple of the top US skill players at the moment, and some people it takes me six months to a year to learn. But once you know what makes them happy, you can just deliver a little bit of in, input at the right time, not the wrong time. You never question their other coach. You just go, hey, do this, be tough, be relentless, be strong, play the big points, put the pace in when you need to. That's not overbearing. That's just a simple approach. Is there a reoccurring philosophy that comes to mind for you of what you try and impart with your elite players? Just be present when you're there. Don't dwell on the last point. Don't dwell on the future forward. Do not look at the round or who you're playing in front. You've got to focus on that match at time. I found that with some of the top elite players, you've got to have fun with them before they go on court, like something light and make it funny or whatever. And they just feel relaxed then. You can't come in overbearing and stressing them. It's got to be like, for example, we had the world championships in Chicago a couple months ago. And Amanda had asked me to, uh, hey, because of COVID rules, she wasn't allowed to do any you know, laundry. So she asked me to do a laundry. And so Victor was there, Olivia and Philippe, oh, can you do some for me too? So I took their bags an hour on the train, did their washing for them, brought them back the next day, did not fold them or sort them, just put them in a bag. And then I put a little video together with music, with my friends, you know, carrying them, leaving the stuff on the bar, leaving them here. And I sent <laughs> it to them the next day and they were dying in laughter, but it made them relax for the thing and they just thought it was fun. So then you could see it coming out in the game. It's making the, like it goes back to the doors program, making it fun, making the environment fun, and then you can have much better results, whether it be amateur or professional. Yeah. I mean, that's when you're tight and constricted, right? Under pressure, that's going to, it's not a great recipe versus relaxed and focused. Certainly sounds like a, a better approach. So when you're saying be present, what would be a a tip you could give a let's say an amateur player who's maybe struggling with that or they keep dwelling on an old point? What's a, a tip or two you could give for them to try on how to be more present? Be more present. I mean, playing with an amateur player and they're, they're hit the rut or something, I would say to them, just lift a little bit more height on the front wall, take a little pace off, nice high chip, three-quarter pace, cross-court, Puts your opponent in the back so then you're on the tee now you're present now you're in front of them now you're in the rally and you haven't done anything over overpowering you've just reset the point and now you're on the tee now you're in the present remember kind of the, 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 the three golden rules of squash are what get on the tee get your racket up keep your eye on the ball you tell an amateur to do those three golden rules they will improve no end because saying all those three things makes them concentrate now they're aware. Now they're present. Simple. It occurs to me, I'm speaking to you with you're at a point of, you know, mastery within your profession. Yet this, what you've climbed a mountain to get here. What was a way that you, I guess I have two parts here. A, how do you personally try and stay sharp with your, how to be a good coach? One thing, again, going back to visual learning, I love watching sports. 
and watching what coaches do at certain times. I remember watching Phil Jackson with the Bulls, Joe Torres with the Yankees. What I'd always watch, what is he going to do next? How is he going to make this? How is he going to win this game? And that goes back to coaching, you know, squash too. Like, how can I make that person win the game? You know, go back to one of my favorite matches ever taught was back with the USA girls. We'd never, ever got to the semis of the world championships in the teams. And we were playing Australia and Ali Pearson was the last person on the game score was one all. She was playing Casey Brown, who had, was number three on the team, but it got to the quarters of the individuals the week before. So she was on fire and Ali went on and they warmed up and I thought to myself, hang on a minute, this girl's played a lot more matches than Ali. Ali can hit the ball with pace, pressure's on her, let's see if we can do this. And uh, Ali just to rally out and just keep the pace up at a certain level and keep twisting and turning, do not hit any drop shots. Whatever she throws at you, just get it to the back. And I remember at the end of the second, end of the fourth game, it was two all, and I took her a water in between games. She sat, sat down next to me and she looked me straight and she goes, okay, what do I need to do? And I said, so for the next five rallies, you're going to make them the longest rallies of your life. Can you do that? And she went, I can do that. I'm fit enough. She went out there. She went up 6-1. Girl was keeled over. She cleaned it out 9-2. It was back at nine then, back in the day. And we were in the semis of the World Championships for the first time ever, Team USA. And it was amazing. And all the reporters flopped all over immediately after the match. She thought she was in the ESPN studios. She thought it was the greatest thing. And it all just came back to figuring out how can that person beat that person. And team events are totally different compared to individuals. Let me make a note of that one. So it's, it's figuring it out at the moment, at the time. So that's an example of how you are as a coach, and I'm curious if you could rewind the clock and kind of pass yourself back a note on what's a cheat sheet of how to become a better coach, what, what piece of advice would you give them? Being a good coach is listening and watching your students. Listen to what they, how far they want to go, how much it means to them, you know, where they've come from. You've got, like I said, you've got to learn that, that player. Everybody has a different background. So it could be somebody coming from South America. It could be somebody coming from Europe or somebody coming from America. Everybody has different backgrounds and how they've been pushed. And it all goes back to, I remember having a conversation before I got somebody fired up for a big final. And I said, who was, and I sat down for an hour and said, who was the first person who put the racket in your hand? That person. Do you remember your first group squad you went to? Yeah. Do you remember your first tournament you won? Yeah. What was your worst experience you have? Yeah. And we did the whole journey to where that person was now. And I said, there's your squash life. That's what you've just done. Now go and win a, a big title. That person went on and she won the first ever British Junior Open for an American player, which was Michelle Quibell. But we went back to her first person who hit with her the hour before and to where she was. So then she felt like this was her next goal. And that's and she played our again. She played Casey Brown in the final. And she played Alva Mine in twenty two minutes. And the year before, kind of, we sat in that parking lot and it was the girls under 17 and she just won her match 3-2. And it was in the back draw. And I remember she was down 2-1, 8-1. She came back and won 3-2. And we got in the car afterwards. I remember sitting, I don't know exactly where I was in that parking lot. And she turned around to me. She goes, I've never been match ball down in my life on one. 
And I looked and I went, really? She goes, yeah, really, I've never happened to me before. She, I said, wow, that's going to change your squash game. That next season, she won the Dutch Junior Open, the German Junior Open, the Canadian Junior Open, the US Open, the Pan American Junior Open, the US Open, I think I said that, and the British Junior Open. So yeah, that, that, just that moment changed her career, coming from match ball down a year before. It was amazing. It was wow. sensational. Yeah. Well, you can see what an impressive squash background and career and success that you've had. And what I want to transition to is actually talking about another area of passion that you have and that you've distinguished yourself yet again. And this has to do with your Lululemon ambassadorship. <laughs> so it's kind of a, it, I'm sure to potential listeners who don't know you, that's a pretty hard gear shift right there. But, <laughs> but it's, I think there's a correlation here in terms of like just how much when you dedicate yourself towards something, you, you do achieve high success. So first off, how did you even get yourself into the uh, this ambassadorship role? Kind of came out of nowhere to be really kind of. Um, so for the last, since about 2016, I've been back doing what I used to do 20 years ago, which was teach spin classes. And I would teach a couple of classes a week at a local studio here in Lake Forest. And it was, the reason I did it is because of music. I love music and I like to DJ, all those different things. So once I had a chance to teach again, I try to play music where nobody would know what it was, but very beat orientated. And my classes start to get very busy. They were a lot more physical and demanding than a lot of other instructors in the area, but that's just the way I was. That's the way I'm built. And then the squash was going and we'd hosted the world championships doubles. We hosted a couple of national doubles championships and Lululemon opened up a new store here in Lake Forest. And it'd been open for a year and they'd asked me, um, to do a Christmas a private class for all the um, staff. And so I did, and that was a lot of fun and we had a great time. And then uh, one day they showed up on my doorstep during COVID with balloons and would you like to be our ambassador? And I'm like, wow. And they were like, yeah. And I goes, well, why did you choose me to be an ambassador? And they were like, because you already are. And I went, well, what's, can you explain? And they were like, yeah, you're strong in the community. You're passionate about what you do. And we'd just like you to be part of our team and represent our store. So since then, I've been involved with the Lululemon brand. And it's I've seen the backbone of their workings and their um, goals and their missions. And they're just really, really impressive. And there's about 2,000 ambassadors worldwide uh, with Lululemon. And we get on a lot of seminars and group chats. And you listen and talk to how these fitness people or it's not just fitness has been we've had a florist who represented our store in lake forest and they're just very passionate about what they do and we go into little pods of four and we talk about things and I, every time i come off a zoom call with different people from lululemon i feel so positive and vibrant and i want to represent lululemon even more you you we can all admit when we put a piece of lululemon gear on it feels great and it always did prior to being an ambassador, but once you have the role of ambassador, which is basically keep spreading the word, not just about the brand, but about what you do, you feel even more powerful and more happy with what you do. And that's a good thing. And it's a positive thing. And I enjoy it. One of the ways that to just dig in a little bit more where it sounds like you got that uh, position or uh, was through your passion of uh, in addition to music, but through fitness and specifically spinning. So 
dive in a little bit more about your your background and how you even got to spinning and how you got to become an instructor. All right, so we're going back to 96, going back to the Premier Club in Dallas, Texas, where I was the squash pro there. My office was in the aerobics office, so I shared a lot of time with the aerobics director. And we were the first club in Texas to get spin bikes. So the certification came out and somebody didn't show up, so I jumped in and I got certified. Then when they're teaching you how to lay out the music, I'm like, all right, but I can do this. Yeah, this music's about, yeah, it's easy, you know, because I know the beat, I know the eight count. And I just then started doing a lot of playlists for a lot of instructors. And I did that. And then I left Texas in 2001 after nine years and didn't teach spin at all. 2004, started teaching the West Loop where you and I shared an apartment around the corner for a about six months to a year, stopped. And then Simon Park came over and stayed with me for a couple of months and between January and February, and that was in the winter season. And there was a lot of um, drinking and eating going on. And I remember one of my juniors did a Snapchat picture of me and it showed me with this huge belly hanging out. And I was like, no, <laughs> no. So then I was like, what can I do to get me fit again? And I found this studio around the corner and I joined for a month. I think I went 20 times I went before I went to work and I lost a bunch of weight. And then I was the only guy in the class, right? And so they figured out that eventually that I've been a spin instructor before. So they asked me to audition and I remember doing the audition. And after the second song, I went and turned the lights out and they were like, what are you doing? I said, we're connecting between the music and the motion in the bike, and it's gonna be a different experience. And then about two more songs later, I had them in my bag and I had a set of disco lights and I flicked them on and that was it. And they were like, this is amazing, you know, it's changed everything, the whole atmosphere and the ambience. And then it went from there on and I would teach two or three classes a week. I eventually started doing DJ classes where it would be constantly one song the whole way through with no breaks and I would keep the intensity up and I would DJ for some of the instructors sometimes and it was just fun again and yeah i always enjoyed spinning and then recently in the last couple of years i've had back surgery and i just had my knee replaced so i had to stop teaching but i'm going to do a guest class for uh, lululemon at the end of the month with another instructor and i'm going to teach off the bike i can teach classes off the bike where i don't need to be on well yet another way that you've combined your passion towards helping to increase uh, a program or push things forward and uh, is using DJing plus uh, the PSA foundation. And I'm talking about the love to be concept that you and some fellow PSA members helped to bring into light. So would you talk a little bit about what that actually means? Okay. So love to be was a super club back in the early nineties, uh, the number one club in England by mix mag. And it was a brand. And they, since COVID hit, you know, they did a love to be 25th year, 25th year tour in 2019. It was a very big success. They started streaming again and they've been good friends of me for over 25 years. And they asked me to join their label last a year ago today, actually to join their label, to be the U S office. And it's just kind of looking for venues and gigs going forward and looking for any new artists or some new tracks and going through the internet, finding it, uh, you know, house music is from Chicago. So that's their brand. And so 
they did a stream right before Christmas called the 12 DJs of Christmas. And they had all these great DJs from all over the north of England. And, you know, they even had David Morales, who's one of the greatest DJs of all time. He was on it. So David Morales was one of the top DJs on it. And Graham Park, who's from the original Hacienda back in the day. And it was a big success. So I made a pitch to them. How about I've got probably contacts of like six to eight DJs around the world who used to be squash players. Then we'll have the three top DJs from Love to Be, and then we'll get Tim from Utah Saints, who was how I was introduced to the Love to Be group back in the nineties. And you know, he's been a superstar DJ, you know, warming up for U2 back in the day. And so I made a pitch to them all and said, Yeah, let's put it together. So I collaborated with another former PSA players, men and women. And we did 12 hours of DJing to raise money for the PSA Foundation called We Are One. And love to be We Are One. That was the day. And we did it on the 12th of March, which was the 12 DJs all kind of came together. And it was fun. And we had a lot of people viewing and love to do fundraisers. Who were uh, some of the other fellow squash playing DJs that jumped in and helped? Oh, it went from the beginning. First on the decks was Jeff Rowe from Squash Skills. Then we had Marcus Barrett. Then we had who else? We had Paul Johnson made a guest appearance, which was pretty impressive. We had Julian Bonitat. We had uh, DJ Nudie from Seattle. She was fantastic. Really, really enjoyed her. Uh, Anilis now that was, and then Annalise, sorry. And then we had Manic played, and then we had Danny Massaro play. And if I've forgotten somebody, I'm very sorry, but but. <laughs> Yeah, it was, and all all the styles were slightly different, which made it unique and it made it fun. And the Love to Be obviously hosted the stream. They did a great job. And the way I pitched it to all these DJs was, you're going to play for an hour, but we're going to blend squash rallies in between the songs. And so that was a little bit of a challenge, having some of these squash players to work out how to, you know, technically and savvy... <laughs> DJ with the sounds and then put it over the mute. But anyway, it, it all worked out and it all was a success. And we managed to raise a couple of thousand for PSA, which was the goal in the beginning. And it was great. I mean, I really enjoyed working the PSA Foundation on that. They were fantastic. You have throughout your whole career been great at looking out for combining passion areas with opportunities. And just like that, with the example of the, the PSA Foundation and the We Are One campaign, but you've also done this going back to Lululemon of of connecting them with Metro Squash. Correct. And talk talk about that story. I was given the ambassador role. They let me in on a foundation that they have called Be All In. And they've, over the last four or five years, I think they've donated like $14 million towards different groups and areas which they feel, you know, they want to develop this Lululemon. So sent it to Metro Squash in Chicago and talked to their people and they filled out all the forms and it could range from 500 to $10,000 what they give. Just depends on how much, just depends what the organization is as well. I got a notification one day that Lululemon were, were definitely be all in and they gave $10,000 to Metro Squash, which was remarkable. I was astonished and I was, it made me feel like I then had really become an ambassador for Lululemon because they were part of it and, um, it's just, there's been a lot of connections and because of that connection, Lululemon's sponsored a couple of holes when they did a golf outing recently for Metro Squash and they dressed me and my assistants head to toe in gear to 
be representing. So it was good. Yeah, I really enjoy working with that company. It's a fantastic company, very global, and has some very good people behind it. Well, rewinding the clock way back to the early 2000s, speaking of Metro Squash, I mean, you were someone, when I was looking to help get that off the ground, you were one of my first people I reached out to, and you were just so supportive. <laughs> I don't think I was ready for how quick you would help use your network to push things forward. And the next thing I know, I'm, I'm speaking to people at US Squash, and you're helping to get the word out. And you know, I want to thank you for your support there, and it's still going. But I just wanted to make sure people knew how you've been there since the beginning. So thank you for all of your help and involvement. Connie, you know, I'll go. I'll take the clock back now. I remember you coming home one day, sitting down on the on the on the sofa, and said, "I think I've got somebody to give some money to Metro Squash or to an urban program." At that point, you didn't know what you were going to call it. And I said, "Yeah, so that's great." He goes, and then you started throwing ideas around about what to name it. And the next night you came back and go, I really like the name Metro Squash. It connects Chicago and things like that. And I said, oh, great name. And then about 10 days later, you've got a small committee organized. And then we put the, you know, the job position out there. We've got numerous things. We had another meeting at the university club. Three people had dwindled down to, and the only person I knew on that list was David Kay. And David Kay, two years prior, I'd taken a group of members out to from the Wednesday club to the tournament champions and had reached out to numerous clubs in New York if they wanted to play doubles. And David Kay was very endearing and very welcoming. He had our players play against me, jumped in. And that stuck out for me, how much customer service he gave and was willing to bend over backwards for people. And that's why I nominated. He was my number one pick. And Happily enough, he got it. I remember him coming in an interview. We went out for dinner afterwards, and he really wanted to change his career and was very passionate about it. And I reported that back to the board, including you. And he's the Pied Piper of Chicago. He has made things happen you would never believe. And it's a testimony to you, Connor, because you started that. Thank you. I appreciate that. But, yeah, I mean, it really has been such a lightning rod, I think, for the Chicago community and helped bridge so many different areas and communities and I full credit to to David and the board who I think we had aspirations to get where it is today, but to see where it is today is just, it's a remarkable journey. And so many supporters out of your club have, have really helped make all the difference in achieving that. Well, I think there's a couple of people who stick out a lot who've been very supportive of squash and I have had the luckily in a position to be their tournament director for the national doubles and the world championships that they both were the fundraisers for and the tournament organizers as well it was Peter Dunn, who's from the racket club. He was present down there at time and a board member on Wednesday and Danny Dolan, who was, didn't even pick up a squash racket till 2011. And then he's now, you know, five years later, he was a jester. Now he's helped raise all the money for the, Oh, Inspector Center, and he's he's very very passionate about squash, and has helped a lot of people along the way. He's a big support of Team USA, and it's just I'm lucky enough to be involved with them in this community, and that's what's so great about the Chicago community. All the pros help each other, all the members help each other's club. They're always trying to develop the game of squash. There's no backstabbing or fighting or anything like that. It's just a positive environment to be in, and that's the beauty about Chicago squash. Couldn't agree more, and you know I look back very fondly of my time there and it certainly is my own second city in terms of where i've always loved and credit to to you for being a part of that fabric so 
I'd like to switch gears to go into a little bit of our, our quick fire section where we just ask some of the guests some standard questions and they can be as long as you want or as short as you want. And if they go nowhere, that's no problem. But we'll start off somewhere easy. What's your favorite movie and or documentary? Wow. I'll come back to that one. Yeah. <laughs> what is something that gets you fired up? And it can either be something within squash world or outside of squash world and fired up could also mean a negative it, it, it evokes a negative emotion or a positive emotion but what gets aiden harrison fired up well i'll tell you a little story here kind of my wife says that i have no emotion I've, <laughs> I've got three kids and every time they were born i wasn't really happy or crying or anything i was just kind of still and you know that stone faced. but there's only one thing that really gets me going and she pointed that out to me when my parents were over and my sister and we're in the basement and we're watching Sunderland Football Club from England, who they're, they're like the Cubs. They've never won anything. They've won one thing maybe. And um, they're always at the bottom of the division fighting for relegation. And, you know, if you want to watch a good documentary, Sunderland Till I Die was actually one of my favorites because it shows the true city and how they embrace and are passionate about their team. Going score was 1-0 and then Sunderland scored in the last two minutes of injury time and I jumped out of my seat and so did my parents and my wife, Kerry Setland, goes, wow, you get so excited about a team tying a game that you did about our children being born. And it's the same that goes with England, watching England play. I mean, I've watched every England game. I've been there for the ups and the downs of penalty shootouts. I've only seen one out of eight penalty shootouts we've ever won. In my career, I was actually at Portugal watching England lose to Portugal in the quarterfinals of the European Championships live. And oh, I sat there for hours afterwards, just sat there with my head in my hands. Like, So that's my passion, England Football Club or Sunderland. And I'll take Sunderland till I die as my documentary now. I like how one answered the other. And I definitely, uh, when you started talking, I was like, I bet it's going to be uh, the England football team because you are, like many other Englishmen, a diehard uh, uh, football fan. So... That makes <laughs> Yeah, I get that. The, the next question, the scenario I'm going to give here is that you're going to give a TED Talk, but the rules are it can't be anything that we know you for. So, you know, we've taken a few things off the table here, uh, developing elite players, squash and DJing, it sounds like, spinning too. So I want to try and find out what else is something that you love that you'd want to share with the world and or what would be something you'd be given the opportunity to go explore and then share about? So what would be your TED Talk? I mean, one thing I love doing is watching my kids do sports, but not be involved in. So watching them develop as individuals and not being one of those helicopter parents and just letting the coach do what they need to do. One of the reasons, because I don't like to have too much parent experience. I don't mind it. And there's a, there's a three-way channel, parent, player, coach. There's a triangle. That works. But when I watch my children in sports from a distance, seeing them develop, you know, and they have a great game, they're happy. They have a bad game. They're upset. You know, and just being that parent role. I mean, I didn't not know what being a parent was going to be like until you actually have them in front of you. And you have to act on the spot. And every parent is different every child is different and it, that's just one of the greatest learning things that you do 
is being a parent and being supportive and being for them in the ups and downs. And that's one thing I love doing daily is being with my kids and being with my family and my wife, obviously my wife. I mean, she's celebrating our wedding anniversary today and, you know, 14 years and it's been great. So is, is there anything within parenting that you've learned sort of whether the hard way or something that you've changed your mind on and you now have a new approach on? So is there anything when you're approaching parenting that you've really developed that you're, you used to not get right and now you're trying to get better? I'm trying not to raise my voice too much when they're doing the little things that drive me crazy, like leaving stuff in the sink. But then after I raise my voice and I've said it, I think myself, well, I used to do that all the time. So I get it. Just being there and watching them grow. I mean, every six months is different with every child. And somebody told me that a long time ago. And they told me the best times in life between age seven and 12. And all three of my kids are in that age right now. So I'm trying to enjoy every single moment I can with them before they become older and more mature and they fly out of the nest. So I'm trying to enjoy that moment and now. And it's been great. Well, to close this out is I used to ask, what book would you recommend for anyone? But since this is a podcast and I my consumption of podcasts has gone way up, I'm going to open it up to either a book you'd recommend to anyone or a podcast. Either or. A book that I really enjoyed reading, and I was asked this question in my profile for my Lululemon Ambassador, which book would you recommend? And I'll go back to the one that Paul Asiante wrote, Run to the Raw. Really, really good, and it's about coaching, and I really enjoyed it. But then I just read Laura Massaro's recently called Be All In, or All In, sorry, and that was really good because I could connect with all the people she was talking about because I've grown up with all them, DP, Danny, Nick Matthew, all those. I, I really enjoy reading autobiographies of different people. Like I've read one very famous pop singer out of England, Robbie Williams, called Nobody Else, and it was really, really good because it, it just made me think, wow, yeah, I can relate to that, and oh, that explains that. And then I've read Sir Alex Ferguson's book. He's released a couple. I've read them, and that's The Art of Coaching. Like I see him as one of my true mentors too, is what did he do? And the way that he still relates to his players, the reason why Ronaldo came back to Manchester United is because of Sir Alex Ferguson, because he took him as an 18 year old and made him what he is today. And now his respect to Sir Alex is to come back for the last couple of years of his career and give back to Manchester United what he gave them when he left. And, I, and it's those little things about coaching, those profiles of those players and it goes back to again to Sir Alex's book, like, how do you do it? So I know that Sir Alex has been a speaker at uh, Harvard for a few years, and definitely you can see why now. I like it. Well, on that note, we're going to thank you for your time and everything that you've done um, for the sport. You, you know, you really have just ignited so much uh, passion within your club, but also then help develop so much talent within the United States. So thank you for everything you've contributed and look forward to seeing more, what more is down the pike. Yeah, we'll see. You never know what the next chapter of my life could be. It could be anything. It could be here at the club. It could be developing more players, young and old, who knows? But whatever it is, Connor, you know me, I'll always try and give 150% because I love the game of squash and it's it's been my passion and it's what I live and breathe every day and they'll never be taken away. Well, thank you for your time, Aiden. Much appreciated.
Well, I enjoyed that. Thanks a lot, Connor. Thanks for having me. Keep up the good work. Well, thank you so much for your time today and for joining us on Squash Radio. We hope you enjoyed this latest episode. But before you leave, we just have one quick last message. As you know, Squash Radio wants to help tell some of the best stories from Squash World. But in order to do that, we want and welcome your help. Do you know a person or a story that involves squash that is interesting, funny, moved you, you care about, reflects your passion for the sport? Well, share it with us and let's try and get it out there on the air. You can email me at squashradio at gmail.com or reach out to us on social media. Again, thanks for your time and, well, until next time, be well and have fun.